Hello and welcome to Connecting the Pieces, an Easter sector development team podcast focused on connecting, supporting and promoting good diversity, wellness and reabilitation practice. We'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of the land where this podcast is being recorded and pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening. On today's episode and over the next few episodes, Dale and I will take a deep dive into understanding diversity and person-centred care. In this episode, we chat about some of the misconceptions about diversity, including what it is and why it's important within the context of planning, designing and delivering services. So Dale, I'd like to start off by asking you, why is diversity important? Thanks, Lisa. And I'm really glad we're doing this series to look at diversity and person-centred care. These are issues that we're both really passionate about. So why is understanding diversity important? I think it really goes to the heart of creating equitable services and having equitable outcomes for people. But what we know is that it's not just enough to understand diversity or to understand the diversity that is important to a particular person. We have to proactively respond to each person's diversity in ways that they find appropriate and inclusive. Thanks, Dale. I think your response really speaks to the fact that in order to deliver services in an environment that's safe and welcoming, we need to not only understand who our clients are, but we also need to actively be finding ways to respond to each person's diversity within our service delivery approach. So how would you define diversity? There's lots of different definitions out there that talk about diversity, and I think it really emphasises the need to be flexible in our approach to understanding diversity and how people view their own diversity. If we do this, it will make it meaningful for each person. But when I talk about or define diversity, I say that diversity describes the personal characteristics and attributes that help shape who we are and what's important to us. So that includes things like our age, where we live, our health and well-being, gender identity, sexual orientation, race, nationality, language and communication approaches, our political beliefs, spirituality, religion, to name a few. These are often referred to as diversity characteristics, and it's important to recognise that we all have diversity characteristics. Diversity doesn't exist just in people who are different from us. Diversity is a fact. It exists in all of us. Thanks, Dale. Your approach to describing diversity will no doubt resonate with many of our listeners today and hopefully make a huge difference in shifting some of the thinking around diversity being related to a single aspect of a person's life, you know, for example, their language or where they were born. I'm sure that some of our listeners today will have seen the Diversity Jigsaw, which you created as part of our Connecting the Pieces resource. And we know that this has been a really useful tool by which to consider diversity and the personal characteristics that can shape, you know, who a person is and what's important to them. I think that's right. And what we want is for people, society, governments and our services to value diversity. And that's what we really try to bring to life in our resource, The Diversity Jigsaw. If we're going to create welcoming and inclusive environments, we need to value diversity. 
That means we must recognise, respect and draw on the positive aspects of difference while also proactively challenging discrimination that people experience and removing the barriers and disadvantage that discrimination causes. Developing services that respond to the diverse background, interests and needs of people will ensure they feel valued and are receiving services that are appropriate and person-centred. So we often hear about diversity being discussed in different ways. So, for example, we often hear people talk about diverse communities or people with diverse needs. So how do these conversations actually fit with our understanding of diversity? I think first up, it's important to say that our language and context around discussing diversity, equity and inclusion is always evolving. And that's a good thing. My hope is that with this evolution, we will start to move away from framing these really important issues under the banner of diverse communities or people with diverse needs. Now, some people might question why that's needed. And I know there's absolutely no intended harm when people use this language, and it's by no means offensive. But if we're stipulating in policy documents, strategic plans, or on our website, that some people have diverse needs. Who do we think are the people that have homogenous needs? Are they the white, middle-class, heterosexual, non-disabled, English-speaking people? These characteristics are sometimes referred to as the mainstream, the norm, or people in the dominant group, because in our society, they are the people with power, And in the most part, the majority of people belong to those categories. That's really interesting, Dale. And I think we're used to using that language to actually help us to group people together who experience disadvantage. And as you were saying, it's all with the right intentions, but at its core, there are some problems with defining people or groups in this way. So could you elaborate on that? Absolutely. I see really two issues when we look at this more deeply. Firstly, if even subconsciously we think that white, middle-class, cisgendered, heterosexual, non-disabled, English-speaking people have the same needs, then clearly we aren't taking a person-centred approach. We don't understand and can't possibly respond to how their diversity is important to their lives because we think they're all the same. Secondly, for those people who aren't white, middle-class, cisgendered, heterosexual, non-disabled, and English-speaking, we're lumping them under a heading of diverse communities or diverse needs that others them. Dale, for people who aren't familiar with that term or the concept of othering, what does this actually mean? Essentially we're saying that this group doesn't fit within the norms of society. And usually there are negative connotations associated with not fitting in. So even subconsciously, we can start to place the blame on diverse communities or people with diverse needs for being, needing or wanting different things. We can also make huge assumptions and generalisations and not see people as 
individual and not see them as who they are. Another sort of misunderstood idea is that people can't access services because of their diversity or that people are hard to reach or disadvantaged because of their diversity. What would your response be to those who think that this might actually be the case? Thanks, Lisa. Yes, this is something I am very passionate about and speak about this issue quite a lot. And you're correct. This is really an extension from the previous conversation. So if we continue on from where we were, If we view everyone outside the dominant groups as having diverse needs, people can associate any different characteristic, be it someone who is transgender, Chinese, bisexual, or living with autism, as the reason that they are not engaged with the service. And therefore, that individual or that group is labelled as hard to reach. But labelling a group as hard to reach is the first step in making it a reality. The individual or the group aren't hard to reach. We as the service provider don't know how to reach them. We don't know how to make them feel safe or that they belong. So because we haven't been able to engage with them, we place the blame or we place the label of hard to reach on that group. So I hear what you're saying there, Dale. What do we actually need to be doing differently? We need to totally reframe our thinking and understand there is something that we need to do differently. So the issue is with us as the service provider, not the individual or the group. It's similar to when we refer to people as disadvantaged or marginalised. What we know is that people experience disadvantage, marginalisation and inequality because of the systemic structures and attitudes that exist in society. And this is the context in which our organisations have been built. What I mean is that people are not inherently disadvantaged or marginalised because of their diversity, their identity, or any of their characteristics. But the disadvantage or marginalisation becomes a byproduct of the way our society, organisations, and legislations have been created. So if we're wanting to make real change and truly have equitable outcomes, we need to recognise the systems and structures that need to change so that our services and the way that we deliver them respond to what each individual wants. Thanks, Dale. So what would you suggest might be some of the systemic barriers that service providers might be able to look at removing in order to support people to access services more equitably? I think it's the right question. And if organisations are asking this, they have to be prepared to be challenged and be at a level of sophistication that requires them to go deep into these issues. Part of answering this question also goes to having discussions with the individuals, the communities, the groups who aren't represented or who aren't engaged with your service finding out from them what the specific issues or barriers are. But some of the issues that we do know exist. There is racism, there is homophobia, sexist attitudes, prejudice towards people experiencing homelessness and those people living with a disability exists within our society. And as we were just saying, our organisations and our policies have been built within this social construct. 
So we need to review and look at the way we've developed our policies, our approach to service design and delivery, and closely examine where problems exist. To achieve real change, we can't do this work at a superficial level. We know from a lot of work that's been done with people from different language and cultural backgrounds, the way in which you create communication and share your messages needs to be translated, not only in the language or the text, but in the tone and the context that is appropriate for the community that you're speaking to. So communication is a specific example I've just given there, and there are many others. My advice to providers is to put a diversity lens over your service to see where the barriers are, what needs to be done to ensure everyone has equity of access and treatment within your service. I encourage teams to watch videos of older people telling their story, explaining the life they've lived, the discrimination they've experienced, and then discuss with their teams if this person was our client or wanted to be a client, how would they experience the service? If people are honest, they know that there will be gaps and issues to resolve. I really like what you're saying there, Dale, because the approach really feeds into the way that we want providers to be supporting clients once they're actually in service. And that is, you know, taking into account each individual person, what's important to them, and ensuring that their needs and preferences are taking into account when designing and delivering services, for example. So one of the recommendations of the Royal Commission is to develop a new Aged Care Act that is based around human rights. So I wanted you just to give us some of your thoughts about what you think this means for the way that we and providers think about diversity. This is a really encouraging recommendation from the Royal Commission. Enshrining a human rights-based approach within the Aged Care Act is the first and critical step to ensuring that our aged care services are designed and delivered according to what's important to each person and ensuring that the services responds to the diversity and life experiences of each person. A human rights-based approach will mean that we also address the inequality in the aged care system and diversity or difference isn't framed as a problem. For too long, diversity and concepts of diversity have been seen as add-ons to the day-to-day work or something that's nice to do or something to aim for in the future. But that is simply not good enough. Every single older person is entitled and deserves services that is welcoming, inclusive, and understands who they are and responds to what they want. And I think that's what a human rights-based approach can bring to aged care. The framing of the act is really important. And going back to what we were discussing at the start of the podcast, diverse needs, people from diverse communities, we can't look at homogenizing people under these labels and banners. We need to understand that while there will be collective experiences that are similar for people who identify with the same groups, there's also great difference that needs to be understood and supported. So Dale, how will the Act really 
impact the outcome for consumers? By embedding a human rights-based approach in the Act, this should filter through policy and service delivery, meaning that every person's right to their dignity, identity and individuality is realised when they access aged care. It sounds like that this new piece of legislation is going to be really important for aged care consumers and also for those of us working in aged care. So, Dale, I'm sure, like me, you're also looking forward to this new change being introduced. So we know that there's also an evaluation of the aged care quality standards that is progressing at the moment. And standard one of these is all about wellness and diversity And this particular standard underpins all other quality standards. So do you want to give us a bit of insight as to how you see diversity embedded within these quality standards? Yeah, no problem. I think the current aged care quality standards were such a massive improvement on what we had previously But it's also important to recognise that there's always room for improvement and growth. I think many people in the aged care sector will welcome changes to the quality standards in line with the recommendations of the Royal Commission. The focus on the consumer is fundamental to the aged care quality standards. The consumer is at the heart and centre of the entire process, and that's exactly how it should be. It's not enough anymore to say we have a policy that says we're inclusive, therefore we are. The only way we know is for our consumers to tell us. So that is a critical aspect of the quality standards. And standard one being about consumer dignity and choice speaks really strongly and without any reservations that each person needs to be able to express their identity and feel comfortable in the service. And I think it's right, therefore, that this is the first standard that underpins all the other standards, because if you can't get this right, you can't get any of the standards right. We've seen organisations going through a change process with these standards so that their response is consumer-centred and responds to who each consumer is. So just on that particular point, Dale, people might be listening and thinking, Well, we can't know everything about a person. So what would your response to that be? It's actually a really important question. And I would be the first to acknowledge that in many situations, we aren't going to have an entire picture or know all there is to know about a consumer. People may not feel safe to trust us with information or simply feel there are some things that are not important to share. They may have been through an experience where it hasn't served them well to reveal much about who they are, their story, or their identity. So it's balancing those things and being able to demonstrate to consumers that they can trust you and it's safe for them to share what they want. Hopefully over time, they share more parts of their story with you and you're able to better direct and design services for them. That's really great advice. And I know that you and I have had lots of discussions around the quality standards and particularly standard one, which is all about consumer dignity and choice. And obviously embedded in there is good person-centred practice. So giving people choice, dignity of risk, enabling them to make 
decisions about their own care and being a really key partner in all of their care. I think it's really important for our listeners to recognise that in order to provide service and deliver those kinds of options for people, they really do need to understand and respond to the diversity of every consumer. Absolutely, Lisa. And that's one of the reasons we're having this conversation about diversity and trying to reinforce the idea that everyone has diversity characteristics. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone has experienced disadvantage or inequality, and it's not for a moment trying to downplay those very important issues. It's saying that everyone, even those who belong to what we call dominant groups, have diversity characteristics, and they tell us things like who they are, what's important to them, what they've been through, etc. For people who have experienced discrimination, inequality, or prejudice, their diversity will also tell us many things. So we need to let our consumers tell us who they are, what they want, and how our service can support them. I thought just to finish, it might be helpful for our listeners if you could provide a couple of key messages around what service providers can actually be doing to ensure that their service delivery model incorporates good diversity practice. Yeah, no problem. We know that diversity can't be an afterthought. So diversity needs to be embedded into our quality improvement practices. One way that we can do this is through a process of diversity planning. Firstly, we need to know our community. That means that we understand the demographics of the people who live in our local area and how they are represented in our service. We identify the gaps and barriers and put plans in place to address them, to improve representation and achieve equitable outcomes. It's really important that we don't just think about diversity as getting someone into a service, but we recognise that we need to be flexible with how we design and deliver our services so they can respond to the different communities and different individuals. And this is where good, inclusive diversity approaches and person-centred care intersect. Placing the person at the centre of their care and building a program or a service around what they want, what they need, what their aspirations are, you can't do that process if you're not thinking about their diversity. So we need to place a diversity lens over every stage of the client journey and look at our communication and marketing, our profile on My Age Care, how do we do service-specific assessment, our approach to care planning and service delivery. And we need to be able to answer how does the diversity of each individual consumer impact that journey and what do we need to do to ensure that their entire journey is welcoming, safe, and that the person feels included in the process. Thanks, Dale. I think that's really great advice. And I know we often encourage providers to be planning and thinking about quality improvement. And we would hope that this is aligned to their organisational processes, as well as their aged care auditing processes. And these quality processes should be ongoing. 
So organisations and the staff within them are continually seeking to improve their approach and the way that they work with consumers. Dale, you mentioned the importance of knowing your community from an organisational perspective, and I'm glad you did because this will actually be the topic of our next podcast in this series. So I'm really looking forward to chatting with you about that. In the meantime, I would really encourage our listeners to visit the Eastern Sector Development Team website at esdt.com.au where you can access information and resources on diversity, wellness and reablement, and particularly the Connecting the Pieces and the Diversity Jigsaw resources, which further discuss the interrelationship between these different principles. Dale, I'd like to thank you for chatting with us today and sharing your wisdom. Thanks, Lisa. Great, as always. And thank you for listening. The Easter Sector Development Team is supported by the Australian Government, Department of Health, and although funding has been provided by the Australian Government, the material and comments made do not necessarily reflect the views or the policies of the Australian Government.